0: Now with the virtual world, we're actually able to engage with scientists from different parts of the world and then connect with their networks. There has become sort of broad recognition that we have a responsibility in higher education to provide our PhD students with a broader set of skills and competencies.
1: That can be another way of getting information that you might not know. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral studies.
2: Welcome to the final episode of season five of Vitamin PhD. It is hard to believe we've come to the end of our season on communication, and I hope you all have enjoyed listening along thus far. Today, Rohan and I are continuing our conversation with Dr. Ritu Raman, an associate professor at MIT, and Dr. William Gayek, currently completing an O-Rise Fellowship at the US Department of Energy. If you have not yet listened to part one of this conversation, be sure to do so to learn a lot about communicating with a broad audience. We hope you enjoy this final episode of season five and thank you for listening along with us. We'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about your fellowships that you've been a part of um, and kind of how they have shaped your career and I know it sounds like both of you are still relatively involved in different fellowship programs um and you know maybe thinking about um an audience that's considering doing a fellowship maybe kind of what your experiences have been if you would recommend a fellowship um maybe if you think that your fellowship or your experiences with different fellowship programs have gotten you to where you are today um just a little bit on your experiences with fellowships would be great to hear about.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of what we've talked about, um, about sort of financial independence and socioeconomic status being really important in access, really kind of plays into this fellowship um, argument, I think, because what a fellowship is really giving you is some amount of financial stability because this way somebody can't necessarily fire you because like you have this external mechanism of support that's saying like this person is studying at this university for x period of time, which can be really helpful. And also gives you a little bit more freedom to explore, you know, if you come from a background where maybe you didn't have a ton of opportunities when you were 13 to go work at a lab at MIT and decide that you like this and not that. Um, maybe you do need to take a couple extra months or maybe a whole year to rotate in a few different labs to find out what that is. So I think fellowships can be a really great way, um, not only for you know the general population, great, it's, it's nice, um, but in terms of accessibility, it gives people a lot of that stability and access um, that isn't necessarily a part of their life. And so I have gotten some of the more like general targeted um, fellowships like the NSF Graduate Research Fellowship made a huge difference in my life. Um, I became eligible for it about like two seconds before I applied because I got a green card like right then. So that was really a big deal for me and, and really broadened my access. But then some of these more targeted fellowships that I've had, so like the L'Oreal Fellowship for Women in Science, um, the Ford Foundation Fellowship from the National Academies, it's more targeted at you know bringing underrepresented folks um, into the professoriate all these sorts of things not only give you the financial support and like the stamp on your CV, but a great network of other people who maybe have similar experiences um, that can help you sort of build your career. And they have a lot of that um, built into their programming. So you know, the L'Oreal one, for example, you're going you're meeting these other women in science, you're you feel like you can go ask them like, hey, can I see how you applied for faculty positions and did this or that. Um, And I think that community can be super helpful. And then, you know, those are kind of more like the research based fellowships that I've had, things like the If Then Ambassadors Program, which I would consider a kind of fellowship in a way, um, because, you know, you apply, there's some financial support. Um, It does that sort of thing of saying, like, hey, all this outreach stuff you're doing, it it doesn't have to be for free. Um, It is labor. And what is wrong with being compensated for that time that you're providing value to society? So I love that it, it gives you. Um, an additional source of support to do that kind of work. And again, you're building community with folks who have similar careers and a similar set of values um, and are navigating them in different ways. So I've had a very positive experience with them. That being said, they are just really hard to get. So you just have to like build a whole spreadsheet of a hundred things you're applying to. And if you get a couple, then that's great, and just be grateful for it and don't take it too personally when you don't.
0: I, oh, my gosh. Amen. To 100% to work is work and deserves to get paid. So whether that's an internship or a fellowship, yeah, get 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 paid, get credit, get something for it that's you know meaningful and useful that you can live off of. Um, because you should not be working for free. Period. Um, in this day and age, you know, free is not going to pay the bills. It is not going to you know get you through medical expenses by any means. That said, um, yeah, apply, apply, apply. Look for places with fellowships that are of interest to you. There are probably a few sources that I'll provide the the, um, hosts with um, for fellowships because no matter what, like there's always something that will be of interest to you um, that other people have created databases of of fellowships or internships that, that fall into it. Um, in the case of, of me, I was able to find, uh, or my, my um, experience, I was able to find the Merzine Fellowship, which was an internship for 12 weeks at the National Academies of Sciences Engineering and Math, or sorry, Medicine, not Math. <laughs> um, I was only there for 12 weeks, so that's why I only know it a little bit. Um, no but it was an amazing experience um i got to um, be on a committee i got to learn about the boards how it operates how they um help to inform um policy within the national or federal government which was fantastic it was an opportunity for me to kind of test my i guess metal um, within science policy so i had only a little bit of experience before it so that was an opportunity for me to get more experience and i think just in general, internships and fellowships, it's an opportunity for you to get uh, a flavor. Uh, it's sort of like a taste test of what it um, would be like to you know have a larger portion of your life dedicated to to that career option. And I think by all means it makes sense to do it because you don't want to you know put your whole life into one one item, right, or one thing, and then once you're finally into it, discover you don't like it. And so um, some previous internships I had in biotechnology, I discovered, while I love teaching other people about bi- biotechnology, I actually don't like <laughs> that field as a whole, like for my permanent career. And so that gave me the opportunity to sort of jettison myself into something that I like, which was more chemistry oriented. Um, but the Merzion Fellowship was fantastic. I got to get more experience within science policy, which was which was great. And I got to learn something new, which I hadn't really had in mind before of trying. And that was economic policy. I had only done like a year of APIB economics. So I just knew like supply chains and demand. <laughs> and so having the opportunity to learn about economics within the government, within this um, the national academies and applying economic theory to, to these different um, projects that I worked on. Um, I think was very interesting, was very fun. And I was happy that I did it because I ended up loving it. Um, And I definitely see myself um, going back at some later date into more economic um, realm type of stuff. But in my current fellowship as an ORIS Fellow, like I am, I I don't know how to explain it. It's just, it feels so fulfilling. I, I enjoy it. I love it. It's another opportunity that I get to try different things out. So it's a little bit more than a taste test. So um, whereas the Merzan was a 12week uh, fellowship, this is um, anywhere from one to four years um, of a fellowship you know depending on you know my interest in the, the office that I work for if they also are interested in maintaining me for four years. Um, and so like I am highly involved as a fellow, uh, you may have opportunities to have more portfolios or sample more of different things so like, The Fed might be hired just to do water security, water policy, whereas a fellow can then do water, can do critical materials, can do diversity, equity, inclusion, and education and workforce development. I'm able to network with so many interesting people at different levels in industry and the federal government and academia, and I I think it's one of the best experiences that I've had because I'm working on research in the sense of guiding people in their research as to get government funds, and I don't have to be at the bench, which is amazing. Yeah, I don't have to hold a pipette, thankfully. Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't want to end up, you know, suffering from all the like physical issues over time of, of, of doing pipetting and stuff like that, uh, although I could do it probably with my eyes closed, but that's another issue.
2: <laughs> Sorry, can I just share one little side note? I just remember in my undergraduate. I was like so dead set on doing field research. I was like, that's just what I wanna do. Had the dream that you know, working outside as a biologist was just what I wanted to do. Summer after my junior year, I got a job working as a field scientist on like this 800 acre land preserve. And I had to do a vegetative catalog of like a transect over the whole thing. And after eight weeks of doing that, I was like, I am never stepping foot in field science again. Oh my god i got so many mosquito bites i had like 20 ticks on me at the end of every day i was like nope never again (laughs) so it's definitely a taste test and you can figure out where you want to be and maybe more importantly where you don't want to (laughs) be
1: um you know i think i was a lot of what i did in undergrad as sort of these like different research experiences i was talking to some folks that i was interviewing to join my lab the other day And a lot of them were like, oh, I did this and I realized I really love doing this and I want to continue doing it in your lab. And I'm like, that's great because you come with this pre-existing skill set. But it made me reflect on my experiences, which um, a lot of them were like, I did this job, that internship, this side thing, didn't like that, didn't like that, didn't like that, didn't like that. So I did something that didn't include any of those (laughs) things. Um, So I would say I've had a lot of taste test experiences. I think one kind of clever thing you can do with them is, Rather than you know necessarily writing off something as good or bad, it helps to come back to it in a while and be like, what aspect of it specifically didn't I like that can translate to other things? And then you know, you know, it wasn't this entire field, it was that I didn't like this part. Um, but you can't do it right away. In the moment, you're just like, ugh, hate it, don't want to do it ever again.
3: That's how I felt about bacteria research and gene stuff is like, you know, I'm gonna jump ship straight into mechanical engineering and do just image analysis because I never need to touch any tissue again. And then I was thrown into doing surgery on mice. Life takes funny turns.
1: Yeah, it you it always come back to bite you. The one thing you say oh. you'll never do <laughs> it'll come back. Jessica's gonna be doing field research in like five months.
0: <laughs> oh no, I hope that doesn't mean I'm gonna to have to like be out there with a hundred Eppendorf <laughs> tubes, and like trying to figure out, did I pipette the right reagent into this tube? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's super hard because, like like I love biology at some point, but uh, or like biotechnology, and then, like I love listening to music too. And so I'll be like there jamming out, and then like, I'll literally forget, okay, which row, which column was I on for this?
3: But coming back to being a little more on point and since we're also getting good time you both said have mentioned this here you know, and you know even in previous episodes that communication is critical to building community is critical to being able to do what you want in ways and we have so many ways of communicating now like you can we're on a podcast we're, you know, we're talking about it uh, I know both of you are active on Twitter. Uh, There is, uh, that's really taking a storm. There are people who get onto Instagram and there's so many ways of of connecting and communicating. Are we reaching a a saturation point on communication? Is there too much being spoken of? Or is it okay to keep going because someone somewhere will hear it. It's a broadband, you know, someone will pick it up somewhere. And so we should keep going.
1: Um, you know, to me, it kind of gets back to the point of rather than trying to solve everybody's problems at a time, kind of picking your audience and then knowing what they needed and where they are. Um, for example, I am quite active on Twitter, but I know that my audience there are primarily phds postdocs assistant professors that are broadly in my field we talk about science and papers and grants and we remember to nominate each other for stuff there's also some journalists and folks in there and that's actually how i ended up getting my book deal which is great but if i'm posting there about like all the stuff that i might be doing that's engaging to preteen girls it's not getting to them because they are not there um and they are on Instagram and not even on Instagram posts, but they're on stories, right? So like, if I'm not creating that content, I'm not reaching them. And if that's not a good fit for me, then that's fine. You don't have to, but you just have to know that you could be creating the best possible content and putting it in the wrong place. And you're not gonna be having any kind of impact at all. So
0: this this touches upon so many different things. Um, So one of them might be like, uh, who should be doing science communication might be a good question um I don't think all scientists are good communicators like I'm still always I, it's a work in progress for me like I, I I can see some areas where I could improve upon but I see some other people I'm like oh no honey this is this is not the way you communicate or you're gonna you're gonna make people double down on you know the dis the disinformation that they've already consumed um, and so it's like recognizing also that science communication while it would be nice for every scientist to have and to actively work on it it is definitely a career in and of itself it's an expertise in and of itself it i I feel like there should be a science communication phd there there has to be somewhere if not please people start creating these psychom phds um it's it's important in in every single way in terms of Communicating the impacts, the benefits of research, of uh, research products to um, everyday people, to specific target audiences um, who haven't historically been a part of the like funding process or who don't understand maybe why so much funding is going towards um, unboiling an egg or something like that, um, uh, such as this, like uh, I think it was like an Ignoble award one of those odd science things where it's like, oh, it sounds like a, almost like a waste of money, but then the purpose of it, the impact that it has, that particular research is actually quite uh, profound. Um, Whether we're being saturated by it, that's a good question. Um, I see Twitter, um, I've never used Snapchat, maybe Snapchat's good, I don't know. Um, Instagram as vehicles, um, for information, for interactions, for engagements, hopefully. Um, there is a very vibrant Twitter community that's on SciComm, that's on science policy, that's on science diplomacy, and related to other careers. And so knowing how to use Twitter effectively, whether that means that you're communicating and disseminating information, or whether that means like you're there to consume information, you know are, are are two different things but they definitely need a certain skill set or knowledge of twitter so i think more people should use twitter if if that's of interest to them in particular there's filters and all sorts of different things that you can use so you can get apologies for that <laughs> so you can get um you can get a lot of interesting information if you tailor your Twitter experience. So you can get information about events that are occurring in STEM in a specific field within it that you may not have heard about otherwise. You may be able to directly have conversations with uh, people at different career stages that may be so much further ahead than you, that maybe via, uh, via other means wouldn't have been possible um, and so there's a lot of opportunities there that you may be missing if you're not part of it. So you may not necessarily have to engage in the conversation if you don't feel like it. But you're losing access to those resources that are being um, talked about. And so I recommend being a part of it if at all possible. Um, just steer clear of the drama. Um, if you do engage, certain messages may get out there or thing. It, it's hard to basically read some messages. Because you may intend one thing, but it's interpreted a different way. And so just, you know, acknowledge that we're all we all are imperfect and hopefully people are coming from places of of love and understanding. And
3: that's a really strong message about apologizing and you know, being genuine about anything that plays out in all spaces, even as a PhD student and with an advisor, it's it's okay to. Be like no I think this will work and then when it doesn't I'm like okay I'm sorry yeah, that it didn't work um, but yeah thank you for also putting that out there yeah.
1: yeah I love that you said that and I think in tandem with that all of us who are using social media also need to remember that apologizing goes along with forgiving um so you know actually listening to people's apologies and in hope if they seem like fairly genuine or at least they're making an effort not trying to immediately be like, well, I'm never talking to that person again, um, you know? So hopefully we can all kind of see both sides of that coin when
2: we're using these technologies. Exactly, yeah, it kind of speaks to the trial and error that's so inherent in all parts of science that can into science communication as well. So we are getting close to time here. Um, kind of a tradition throughout our season has been to ask each of our speakers to give a quick like 60-second soundbite of advice that they would pass along to graduate students, early career scientists interested in maybe starting to explore science communication a bit more, science advocacy, working with communities. What if you were to you know, sum up a lot of the things that we've talked about today in just a 60-second lightning talk, what um, words of wisdom would you want to pass along to our audience members? I'll
1: give it a go I think for what advice I would share is that science communication and science advocacy um, both of them start at home it starts in your family it starts in your community you don't have to write a book and start a multinational organization Um, you can think about how can I help one person that I saw today that was struggling with something that I've experienced before and combated how can I explain vaccines um, to a family member who is maybe a little concerned about them all of those things have a tremendous impact and value and often more than some of these bigger flashier things that start on paper so that's um the best advice that I can give to people about getting started
0: oh this is a lot of pressure it's almost like a ted talk for for a one minute sound bite <laughs> um, but yeah uh yeah I don't have a timer darn um, I will count it off in my head then while trying simultaneously to to multitask So science communication, science advocacy is amazing. It's the next best thing since sliced bread. Everyone should be doing it in one way, shape, or form. You can start doing science policy and science advocacy with no experience. Try it out. There are many different groups that you can get involved with. Uh, There are many opportunities and different pathways to to tackle a particular issue that you may see present. Um, it, it all starts with uh, an initial effort. It can be as small or as big as you would like it to be. Um, I'd say that there's no wrong way about starting off. Um, and then just be compassionate with yourself, be, be forgiving, be able to learn, and you will be able to get towards, you know, succeeding at science communication. Wow.
2: Perfect timing!
0: My gosh. <laughs> I, I
3: wish this was a visual thing as well because that was an epic moment. So I'm just going to describe <laughs> it <laughs> for everyone listening. <laughs> Rithi just held up her phone to the screen with the st- with the stopwatch on <laughs> as Eam spoke, so that he had a perfect rundown. And he ended. What was it? Fifty. It was fifty nine something. Nailed it
0: all the beads of sweat. Yeah, it was like 59.9 <laughs> in
3: Perfection. Uh, oh perfect. my, we are uh, at time. We have like a minute to spare, uh, I guess, today. Everyone's just on point. Thank you so much for a great episode, a great final episode. I think this is where Jess and I also wrap up our podcasting careers for now as we go back to uh, the dungeons of the PhD life. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if the, uh, if there's any plugs that you want to do at this point in time,
0: sure. Um, for those who are interested in um, you know, oh, shoot, <laughs> for those who are interested in you know hearing more about um, what I have to say and are interested in you know contacting me for maybe an informational interview. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at William Gayek, so that's W-I-L-L-I-A-M-G-A-I, E as an elephant, C as cat, K as kite. Um, for those that are interested in science policy, I recommend checking out the National Science Policy Network, that's SciPolNetwork.net org i need to double check okay that's not the best sale um and then uh for those that are interested in um uh, just in general fellowships within the federal government at all the different agencies check out z intellect so that Z is in zebra and then intellect.com and it's a really great resource to be able to find um fellowships throughout the federal government
1: Great. Um, And I'm also on all the social media <laughs> so on Twitter, I'm at dr. Ritu Raman, and Instagram at Ritu.Raman. Um, my big plug is that my biggest science communication effort is my book, which is coming out next month. So if you're interested in learning more about how engineers are integrating biology into the machines we build and what are the ethical and environmental implications of doing that, Um, you can order it now online at my website or on the MIT press website, um, or That being said, um, you know, who wrote a better book on this is Susan Hockfield, the first female president at MIT. Um, so she wrote a book called the age of living machines that I love and got her to autograph. So if you were going to pick, read only one book on that, read hers, not mine. But if you want to read two, then read hers, then read mine.
3: (laughs) We'll include that in the show notes. Um, Uh, If you want to know about NSPN and more about science policy, listen to the previous episode because we had Meredith from NSPN, who was on there and shared a lot of uh, good information there as well as a lot about science policy. Wow. Hold it. What? Wait up now.
2: Yes, we did it. I did not expect this to be such a journey, signing on. Oh my gosh. I just feel like, first of all, I have such a greater appreciation for the work that goes into making a podcast. Holy smokes! Like, just an amazing learning experience. I think figuring out how to how to like interview people and develop questions and respond and learn and adapt.
3: I think it's been a crazy time. Takeaways, like, what is what, what something that impacted you? through all these conversations. We, we got asked this question when we did our intros. This is kind of our outro. Right.
2: <laughs> Man. I, I just feel like through this whole thing, I've been reminded or maybe just encouraged to keep in mind that there are people working in this space, even if I'm not engaging with them day to day. Universally, science communication is something that we're all Involved in in some way, shape, or form, and I think learning about how professionals are doing it in different capacities was just really inspiring for me. Especially, you know, I'm coming up to the end of my PhD. Vaguely, <laughs> fingers crossed, but I'm thinking about next steps and what aspects of research and academia I want to take with me, and what I'm missing in research and academia that I think maybe I could find through other avenues and. It's just been really inspiring to hear about people doing science communication successfully and the complexities and the challenges associated with it. How about you?
3: What are you What are you feeling? Many things. Uh, I think all of this coming to an end is wow. This was something that I had maybe dreamt of, but it was it was a it was a wild dream. Not nothing that I wanted to actually ever like pursue. Right. But, oh, it would be cool to do this thing kind of thing yeah when I was like 18 19 and now I'm doing it and thinking about all the episodes you know and just in like episode three four when when we were talking so much about speaking up and finding your voice, I have I've found this entire exercise, this endeavor that the two of us have been on uh, being me asking questions that I wouldn't have, Normally, ask someone, uh, and I may not have met some of these people had it not been for this podcast, or or even reconnected Absolutely. with some of them, uh, for that matter.
2: I think you hit the nail on the head. Like these are questions I want to ask people, but there's never really a time or place for it. This was just nice to have a space to talk about these things.
3: We we are we we have covered. We this really country.
2: have, yeah. And I think just in terms of the science that people do we've covered a lot as well, not even their career paths, but we've had people who have studied the sociology and the philosophy of science. We've had biomedical engineers, biotech people, we've had biologists, we've had environmental scientists, science policy makers at a bunch of different levels of government, person who started a nonprofit. (laughs) (laughs) We've learned so much. We have. I'm excited for you all to hear it, Maybe now you'll be hearing it after you've listened to the whole season. So reminisce with us.
3: <laughs> I think it's important to look to the future and communication is the bedrock of the core capacities of if you've heard and followed throughout communication is kind of the bedrock of building a community that will support you in the work you do, right? Um, community su- con- communication supports advocacy exactly. as well. So stay tuned. There are more Vitamin PhD seasons that will follow, focusing on the core core capacities and communication being the filler to all of them. Yeah. And guess what? If you want to be a host, reach out. If you want to build your community and take a stab at something new, sure, reach sure. out. There is an email, right? gradpd at pu.edu. Follow us on Twitter. Jess and I are both... Very grateful to Sarah, who is our editor who has put together these episodes and you know been willing to play along with Jess and my <laughs> ridiculous research schedules as well. We are very apologetic for never responding on time. <laughs> Thank you, to both of
2: uh, you and for Sasha and for just like convincing us both to step outside of our comfort zone and do this. I Would not have done it without her. So it's been truly a wonderful experience. And for having the foresight to pair us both together.
3: (laughs) And that one. (laughs) (laughs) And So here we are wrapping up season uh, uh, five of Vitamin PhD. And a good one. For us, it has. For our listeners,
2: that's up to them.
3: (laughs) Any other last words of advice, Jess?
2: Oh man, advice. Yeah, we've asked our speakers to do this and now we're in the hot seat, it's really hard. Um, I would reiterate kind of what Rohan said. Don't be afraid to speak up. I think you have more of a voice than it may seem day to day. I know a lot of us struggle with imposter syndrome, but just know that what you're doing is important. You're very good at what you do and you should feel proud of what you do and proud of yourself. That was about 60 seconds, but I feel good ending there.
3: This is a good time for Fire to start cutting into a song or something. Otherwise, Jess and I would go into nervous laughter yeah. mode. Uh, so, on this happy <laughs> note, thank you. Stay <laughs> safe. Stay sane, and keep doing what you're doing. We would like to remind all our listeners that the opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the guests and hosts. They are not on behalf of the organizations the guests and hosts are affiliated with. Or may have mentioned on the podcast. Thank you all for your support and stay tuned for more vitamin PhD.